How many of you love the, the Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Don't be bashful. Yeah, go Jimmy Stewart, right? Yeah, well, if it's been a while or you haven't heard that before, um, the, the classic Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life, it follows the story of a man by the name of George Bailey. And George Bailey runs a small uh, building and loan company. He finances mortgages for the little people in a town by the name of Bedford Falls. And though he spent his entire life looking out for the little guy, he, he tends to meet resistance on every side from his evil nemesis, Mr. Potter, who owns pretty much everything else in town and would love to put Bailey out of business. So on Christmas Eve, George Bailey's financial situation takes what you could call a turn for the worse. A turn for the worse. And George quickly spirals into depression and actually decides to try and commit suicide, uh, convinced in the words of Mr. Potter that he is worth more dead than alive. But just before he takes his life, he meets an angel named Clarence, who proceeds to show him what Bedford Falls would be like if George had never been born, right? So it's, it's a terrifying glimpse, certainly for George, a terrifying glimpse of an imaginary future. And it has a profound effect, if you've seen the movie, on, on George's heart and on his mind. He realizes that his life hasn't been a waste. And though his present sorrows remain, his attitude changes, is transformed from despair to hope. Now, there are a lot of differences between George Bailey and Bedford Falls and Daniel in chapter 8, okay? But there are also some similarities. It's similar in the sense that Daniel, like George, is given a glimpse of the future and it has a profound effect on Daniel's heart and mind, okay? That's the similarity, but it's different in the sense that the future Daniel glimpses in this chapter, this is so important, is not imaginary. That's the difference. It's real. In this chapter, Daniel sees real people committing real evil and causing real suffering. Real people committing real evil, causing real suffering. And, and just to give some context here, if you haven't been hearing these sermons thus far, Daniel 7, the previous chapter, that's where Daniel gives us this great big overview of human history from Daniel's day until the day the Lord returns, okay? All of human history over that time span. But in Daniel 8, he zooms in on a slice of that sequence, okay? It's like double-clicking a point in that timeline, and he focuses on a roughly 400-year span of human history particularly the world events and their implications for the Jewish people. That's what's happening here. And it's not a pretty picture. In fact, Daniel goes so far as to say, when he sees this vision, it is appalling. It's appalling. And I, and I think the reason's pretty obvious. Okay, from start to finish, Daniel 8 is an entire chapter of sorrow. And suffering. There, there, there's no turning point 
where, where everyone lives happily ever after in Bedford Falls. It, it begins in sorrow and it, and it ends in sorrow. And yet, it's tremendously helpful. Why do I say that? Well, friends, I would argue there are a lot of points in our life that begin in sorrow and end in sorrow. You know, we, we, we live in a broken, sinful, evil world. We do. And a chapter like this is so helpful during this part of our journey because it teaches us some things. Okay, here's, here's what it teaches us. Real quick summary, okay? It teaches us that God knows our future sorrows. It teaches us that God controls our future sorrows. And it helps us see how if God knows our future sorrows and controls our future sorrows, then we can be faithful to follow him in our present sorrows. That's what's going on in chapter 8, okay? God knows our future sorrow, he controls our future sorrow, and that helps us be faithful in present sorrow. Okay, those are my points. Point number one, let's look at this together. God knows our future sorrow. He knows our future sorrow. Daniel 8 opens with this vision, this vision that God gave Daniel around 550 BC uh, during the reign of, of King Belshazzar. He was a Babylonian king. And like chapter 7, the, the vision that Daniel has here in chapter 8 is filled with all these animals that symbolize various kings and kingdoms. Okay, it's fairly simple. The first that Daniel sees, or that appears, is a ram with two horns which the angel Gabriel tells him in verse 20, are the kings of Media and Persia. Two horns, okay? And the fact that one horn is higher than the other and the higher one came up last points to the fact that in the Medo-Persian Empire, the Persian part was significantly stronger. And Cyrus the Great, who united the Median and Persian kingdoms into a united empire, he was a Persian. That's what's going on there. And back in Daniel 5, it's not the only time we see this in Daniel, we read how the Medes and Persians conquered Babylon, killing Belshazzar. Remember, the whole book isn't necessarily chronological. In 539 BC. And after the Medes and Persians did that, they expanded under Cyrus in nearly every direction to forge one of the largest empires that the world has ever seen. So look at verse 4 of chapter 8. This is a description, a pretty good description of the success that Cyrus and his successors, the Persians, enjoyed for about the next 200 years. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. 200 years, Persian history, in that verse. Now look at verse 5. Daniel sees this male goat coming from the west, quote, across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. He has one large horn and he uses it to strike the ram and break his horns. Verse 7, and the ram had no power to stand before the goat, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. In verse 21, Gabriel tells Daniel that the goat represents the king of Greece. King of Greece and that this single great horn represents what? The first king of the Greek empire. Now, history question, all right? 
who knows who the first great king of the great Greek empire was? It's Alexander the Great. Alexander, yes, exactly. And in 334 BC, Alexander led his Greek armies to conquer the entire Persian empire in three years. Three years. They moved at lightning speed, moving so fast that it was as if his feet never touched the ground. They just kept running. They they came from the west, they came from Macedonia, and under Alexander's leadership, they conquered, get this, more than 1.5 square million miles, exceeding even the Medo-Persians. So if the ram, the Medo-Persian empire, became became great, verse 4, the goat, the Greek empire, became what? Verse 8, exceedingly great. That's proved out in history. But all of that changed in 323 BC when Alexander died. Quote, the great horn was broken. And his kingdom was split among how many generals? Four. Cassander, Ptolemy, Antigonus, and Seleucus. Just like verse 8 promised, after the great horn, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Now, Matthew, what's up with the history lecture? This is Sunday, not high school. Listen to me here, okay? There are people that would say that because this prophecy is so ridiculously accurate, I mean, it's uncanny. Hundreds of years before it happened. That that means this entire book had to have been written after the fact. There's no way. It had to have been written after the fact. You can't call it like that. That right. To which I would say, really? (laughs) Is that the only solution? Is the only solution that explains the accuracy of this prophecy that it had to have been written as a prophecy, but really after the fact. How about Psalm 139? Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Listen, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Or Isaiah 46, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. What what is it that sets the one true God apart from every other false God? I declare the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. Okay, if you back up into Isaiah 41, it's precisely the fact that the Lord knows and declares from the beginning what's going to happen in the end that makes him worthy of worship. Unlike all the other idols that Israel was tempted to serve. What set him apart was that he was omniscient. He was all-knowing. He knew the past. He knew the present. He knew the future. So, So how does Yahweh know, you might ask, what will happen in the future? 
Well, it's because he planned it from the beginning. And he declares it to us in advance in, in places like Daniel 8, so that when it all goes down exactly like he promises, we would be forced to recognize that he is God and there is no other. And that he's infinitely worthy of our loudest praise and our deepest trust. The accuracy of these prophecies, church, is stunning. It's stunning. It's going to get even more amazing in chapter 11. Okay? It's just stunning, but it testifies to the absolute truthfulness of the word of God. That's what it does. What God speaks is true always. So let's get practical. What does that mean? Okay? Briefly, that means that we're not free to accept some parts of Scripture and reject others. Right? If the Word of God is absolutely true, always, what does that mean? You and I are not free to write out or edit out some parts of Scripture and only keep others. Okay? We're not allowed to say, I'll take what the Bible says about love and the golden rule but you know what? I'll just sort of shuff off to the side what it teaches about divorce and marriage and my sexuality. No. Don't do that. We're not allowed to do that. The Bible doesn't give us the freedom to do that. It, it's not a collection of moral recommendations that we get to assess and evaluate by the whims of human reason. It is, as Luther said, the norm of norms that cannot be normed. I love that. It's the, I mean, it's like, hold on, you got to think about it for a second, but it's true, right? It's the norm of norms that cannot be normed. It norms itself. And the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, it testifies to the abiding truthfulness of the word of God. God knows the future. You can trust him. But he doesn't just know it in a, in a general way. Right? I mean, back to the, the, the point I made earlier. He doesn't just know the future. He knows our future what? Our future sorrows. He knows the future in a particular way that includes the details of our greatest sorrows. Why do I say that? Well, we'll look at verse 9. Verses 9 to 14. What do we have here? Well, out of, out of one of the four horns of the Greek empire comes this little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. Well, that's, that's an obvious reference to the Seleucids, the Seleucid Empire, who controlled the land of Israel, the glorious land, after Alexander the Great died. And in particular, historians are nearly universally agreed on this, it's a clear reference to a wicked king by the name of Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphany. And the correspondence between what Daniel sees this little horn doing in verses 9 to 14 and what Gabriel says the little horn will do in verses 23 to 25 and what Antiochus actually did from 175 to 164 BC is ridiculous. I mean, they just all line up. It's amazing. And it's also unimaginably evil. So look at verse 23 tells us that at the latter end of the Seleucid kingdom, a, a what? A king of bold face who understands riddles shall arise. And verse 25 adds that by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. What's that tell us? 
tells us that this king is aggressive. He's dishonest. He's, he's a master of intrigue. You need to know that Antiochus was not the rightful heir to the Seleucid throne. His nephew was. And he stole it through bribery and flattery. He, he used ruthless military power to expand his kingdom, causing, verse 24, fearful destruction wherever he went in the second century. And when Daniel says in, in verse 10 that this little horn Antiochus will, will throw to the ground and trample the host of heaven or the stars, that's a reference to the people of Israel, which the prophet Jeremiah describes as the host of heaven in Jeremiah 33. Gabriel confirms that in verse 24. Look at verse 24 when he says the little horn will what? Destroy mighty men and the people of God who are the saints. Now you may not know this, but when Antiochus Epiphanes invaded Jerusalem in 169 BC, he plundered the city And he brutally killed 40,000 men, women, and infants. And then he sold another 40,000 into forced slavery. That's what the Syrian king Antiochus did to the Jewish people. And according to historians, he initially approached the city with an offer of peace only to suddenly begin annihilating the population. Look at verse 25. Gabriel says what? Without warning, he shall destroy men. And at the beginning of verse 11, Daniel sees this little horn become great, even as what? Great as the prince of the host. What's he doing? He's ascribing glory to himself instead of ascribing glory to God. Do you know why he's called Antiochus Epiphanes? Well, because he had inscribed on all the coins in his kingdom, Antiochus Epiphanes. You know what Epiphanes means? God manifest. So that every time his subjects held up one of the coins in their kingdom, they would be confronted by the reality that Antiochus, supposedly, God, was manifest. At the end of verse 11, Daniel sees that, what? The regular burnt offering, speaking of the temple in Jerusalem, will be taken away and the place of God's sanctuary overthrown. Surprise, surprise. In 167 BC, Antiochus entered the temple in Jerusalem. He built an altar to Zeus in the middle of the temple, and then he sacrificed a pig on it. He defiled the entire area. He also forced all the Jews in the city to abandon observance of all the Old Testament law. He forbid them from keeping their dietary laws, from circumcision. He didn't allow anybody to keep the Sabbath and the various festivals that God had commanded Israel to observe. He obliterated. So to say, verse 12, he will throw truth to the ground could not have been more historically accurate. 
It's exactly what happened. In one of the Jewish historical records, 1 Maccabees says this, listen, the books of the law which they found, Antiochus and his army, the books of the law which they found, the word of God, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. And where the books of the covenant were found in the possession of anyone, or if anyone adhered to the law, the decree of the king, Antiochus, condemned him to death. That's real history. In the ancient Near East, from roughly 175 to 164 BC. Now, why go into all that detail? Why do I take time to go through all that history? Well, well, friends, it's not just to remind us that the word of God is exceedingly true and trustworthy. It's also to help us see that the Bible describes our physical and spiritual enemies with brutal honesty. Now, now follow me here. They're exceedingly great, Scripture says. They're they're fearful. They, They succeed in what they set out to do. They destroy many. They exalt themselves against the Lord. And they seem to get away with it. Have you ever been oppressed, sinned against, violated by someone who has no regard for the law of God or the word of God, and it just seems like they get away with it. Well, why is it helpful that God describes that something like that is about to come down the pike for the Jews? Most of us are Gentiles. I mean, I think this is history. How's that helpful? Well, friends, I would simply argue that it, that it proves that God gets it. That God gets it. God, God gets what life is like in a sinful, broken world where messed up, oppressive people do horrible things. He gets it. He he shows us that he gets it in his word. And you know what that proves? It proves that when God speaks words of comfort, hope, and promise to us, he's not conning us or tricking us into buying into some religious fairy tale where everything's just happy-go-lucky. He's not. The Bible speaks honestly about our sorrow. Why? Because the God of the Bible is intimately aware of our sorrows. Which gives us all the more reason to trust the words of comfort that he speaks in the face of them. If he didn't get the sorrows and didn't go to great lengths to not just describe but predict in advance in great detail the depth of the sorrows of his people, it would be harder to believe that he actually gets it, that that we're operating in the same universe and that when an unexpected bill shows up or I learn that my kid is not ever going to come home again, that God gets that. He gets it. And if that's hard for you to believe, if it's hard for you to believe that, that God actually gets it and that it's not like there's this happy fairy tale Bible Christian Sunday world and then your real world. No, that God actually gets it. If that's hard for you to believe, then you need to read the Psalms. You need to read the Psalms. Why? 
Because over and over and over and over again, the Psalms speak about enemies. And in a tolerant, everything-goes society, we need to learn how to do that. The Bible speaks very clearly about real enemies and real evil and real people that sin against you and me. The fact that's there isn't an accident, friends. It's, it's, not, it's not wasted space. When you're reading the Psalms, don't, don't skip over all the enemy parts and get to the two verses at the end that say, and yet it will go well. I mean, no. You know what I'm talking about? It just feels like all this time on the evil linger there. Because that's real life. If you don't linger there, and if we don't learn how to lament to the Lord over the suffering that we experience because of the sin in us, the sin around us, the sin in the world, then we're never going to be able to genuinely lay hold of, by faith, in the midst of our sorrow, the promises of God. You've got to learn how to let the word of God lead you in being honest about evil before you can receive that the word of God says about the comfort we have in Christ. God knows our future sorrow, or as Moses so poignantly said in Exodus 2, when Israel was still enslaved in Egypt, listen to what God said. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He, he knows your future sorrow, friend. He knows our future sorrow, okay? But that's not the only thing Daniel 8 teaches us about the Lord. He, he knows our future sorrow, but second, he also controls our future sorrow. He knows our future sorrow, he controls our future sorrow. Why, why do you think, why do you think, verse 27, that Daniel says he was, quote, overcome and lay sick for some days after he received the vision. When I read that this week, I thought, okay, what? You got sick? Um, I just got confused. You got sick? I got confused. Like, what's happening here? Well, I, I think it's in large part because Daniel realized that neither the suffering that had led his fellow Jews into exile in the first place the suffering that came about as a result of their disobedience, that cycle of disobedience and suffering and disobedience and suffering, he realized through this vision that that cycle was not going to end anytime soon. And look at, look at verse 12. Daniel perceives that the reason, this is important, the Jewish people would endure such grievous suffering at the hands of Antiochus. Look at verse 12. And a host, Israel, will be given over to it. What's the reason? Because of what? Transgression. Because of transgression. To, to his dismay, Daniel saw the cycle of Israel sinning and God judging her on account of her sin would continue in the future. And that's part of the reason why chapter 8 is immediately followed by chapter 9, where Daniel falls down on his face and starts praying for mercy. We'll get there in a couple weeks. But for today, hear me on this point, friend. Hear me on this point. If you, like the Jewish people, if you persist in sin, if you persist in willfully disobeying the clear commands of the word of God, then I promise you, you will suffer for it. 
You will. If not in this life, then in the life to come. Now, let me be very careful here. Very careful here. Okay? Personal or corporate sin is not the only reason we suffer. Consider Job. (laughs) Right? Consider Job. The story of Job. He's an innocent man, but he still suffers. I'm not going to preach a message on Job right now, but, but the point is that we should strongly disagree with people who see an unrepentant sin lurking behind every physical illness. But, that's true, there are still real consequences for sin, which Israel experienced in part at the hands of Antiochus Epiphanes, which is exactly what God promised in Daniel 8 and all the way back in Deuteronomy 28 when he first made his covenant with Israel. Yet in her suffering, God remained in complete control. Remember what I said. He doesn't just know our future stars, he controls our future stars. So, so how do we know that? Well, look at verse 12. First reason we know that, verse 12, is that she, Israel, will be given over to it. Given over. Over by who? (laughs) By the Lord. By the Lord. It it was ultimately the Lord's will that Antiochus fulfilled, even though Antiochus remained morally responsible for his wickedness. It's the first place we see God in control of our future stars here. And the second is in verses 13 and 14. I want to linger on this for a minute. Daniel, here's an angel ask. I mean, is this, it, this is like our question, right? How often have you asked this of God? How long? For how long is the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, I would argue, I think it's best to take that number symbolically. Okay, just like so many of the other numbers in, in Daniel. And if you, if you do the math, that's a little bit over six years and days, but less than seven years. Why do I say that's symbolic? Well, because all throughout Scripture, seven is the number of completion. And Daniel's point here is that the suffering of God's people under Antiochus is going to stop short of total annihilation. It's, it's real suffering, but it's cut short. It's, it's not allowed to continue to the bitter end where all hope is lost. In other words, there's a limit. There's a limit to the evil that God was going to allow to befall his people, and God's not counting that limit or marking that limit in centuries. He's marking it in Days. Now, does, is that, am I saying that by that, that the evil we experience never lasts for centuries? No. What I am arguing is that God counts it in days, which means what? Well, in the words of Ian, do good. It means that God has a precise calendar. Hear this. A precise calendar for the events of world history. A calendar that is accurate to the day. Yet at the same time, Utterly inscrutable to all human efforts to decode it. 
I love that. I love that. God has a calendar that is accurate to the day, including our future sorrows. But it is utterly impossible for us to decode it. That's right. That's right. But God demonstrated his control over Israel's future sorrow under Antiochus because in 164 BC, the Maccabees revolted against him and on December 14th, 164, Judas Maccabeus cleansed and rededicated the temple. You know what holiday we celebrate with that? Do you celebrate with that? Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Daniel 8.14, look there. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. It happened. It happened. It happened in 164. And in 164, Antiochus suddenly died. Historians note that he was stricken by grief and remorse after suffering a major military defeat. He was not killed. He was not assassinated. He simply, unexpectedly, surprisingly died. Which if you look at verse 26, we see that when Gabriel said the vision was true, he wasn't lying. When he says that he, Antiochus, shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but by no human hand, verse 25, he spoke the truth. He spoke the truth. Antiochus caused tremendous sorrow for Israel. But friends, God didn't just see it coming, okay? He didn't just see it coming. He limited it, he controlled it, and when Antiochus reached the number of days that God had allotted for him, he died. And it's interesting that the way Antiochus, this little horn of the third kingdom is described in Daniel 8, is nearly identical to the way Daniel describes the little horn of the fourth kingdom in chapter 7. Why is that significant? Two different little horns, one in the fourth kingdom, one in the third. But they're spoken of almost identical terms. What does that tell us? Well, friend, that's Daniel's way of telling us that we should expect this pattern this pattern to come and take place over and over and over again in human history where human kings and kingdoms defy the glory of God, they oppress the people of God, and then God takes them out. They defy the glory of God, they oppress the people of God, they sin against us, they oppress God's people, and then God takes them out. Antiochus' death was living proof that God controlled the sorrow in Israel's future. Friend, God controls the sorrow in your future. All of it, look at verse 19, this is so important. All of it is appointed. None of it is random. None of your future sorrow will be random. Every day of it will be under God's complete control. Today, tomorrow, next week, next year. Even if it's a result of your own sin and foolishness, it's always going to be controlled by God and used by God for his glory and your good. That's amazing. Now, How do we know that for sure? 
You know, I love to ask that question. How do, how do we know that? Give me reasons. Well, friend, it's because Daniel 8.14, the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state, doesn't just point forward to Hanukkah in 164 BC. It also points forward to Easter Sunday in 33 AD. Listen, John 2. So the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Translation, we want to see your resume. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 40, they don't get it, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples, voila, remembered what he had said, that he'd said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Brothers and sisters, if, if you're in Christ, hear this, if you're in Christ, then when God restored Jesus, the ultimate temple, the ultimate dwelling place, the sanctuary of God on the earth, to his rightful state when Jesus rose from their grave, then if you were in Christ in that moment, he restored you to your rightful state. And now you too are a dwelling place, a restored temple, the living God through the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. God in Christ has triumphed already over the guilt of your sin, over the power of your sin, and the resurrection of the temple of the body of Jesus Christ proves that one day he's going to deal with the presence of sin entirely. It proves that to you. Your ultimate enemy, friend, if you're in Christ, your ultimate enemy will be broken. And guess what? When it goes down, it's not going to be by any human hand. <laughs> It's going to be by God's hand. God, God knows our future sorrows. God controls our future sorrows. We believe him. We believe that's true because of what we see him doing in Christ. And that enables us to do what? The fact that he knows our future sorrows and controls our future sorrows. That helps us be faithful in present sorrow. That's the point. If God knows our future sorrows, and if God, in fact, controls our future sorrows, then what does that mean? That means we can be faithful to him in present sorrow. Now, now follow with me here, okay? Because this, this is where it all comes home to today. Think about this. What is it that makes it so hard to keep trusting God and obeying God when you're suffering? Think about this. When, when the illness won't go away or when, when the wayward child won't come home or when you're still waiting for a husband or when the bills keep piling up. I, I think, I would argue, that it's the fact that so often in these situations we don't see an end in sight. That's why it's hard. I mean, if we knew exactly when it would be over, it wouldn't be easy, but it would be easier, you know, because you could just put your head down and slog through it. But, but so often, we have no idea when our present sorrow is going to come to an end. No idea. For some of us, it just goes on for decades. It, it never seems to come quickly. And notice, that was Daniel's experience, <laughs> right? He, 
Here he is suffering with the Jewish exiles in Babylon, and God gives him a vision where he sees nothing but continued suffering for the people of God for the next 400 years. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't exactly call that a word of comfort. (laughs) Come on, God. Wrong address? Daniel needed comfort. All you did was show him another 400 years of suffering. Well, friend, that might not be the word of comfort that we would like to receive. That Daniel wanted to receive, but I would argue it's still a good word. It's a necessary word. It's a critical word because it teaches us that that God, God knows our future sorrows. That God controls our future sorrows. And and Daniel's response, we're going to look at one verse here in conclusion. Verse 27. Daniel's response shows us how to remain faithful to the Lord in the present. Even with the specter of sorrow lingering in the future. You following? We need help to know how to be faithful in the present, like Daniel, even with the specter of sorrow lingering in the future. In Daniel's case, it was another 400 years at least. Okay? So he gives us some guidance here. Look at verse 27. I, Daniel, was overcome, and I lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. I think he teaches us at least three things here. In conclusion, how to respond, how to be faithful in the present, okay? How do we be faithful in present sorrow? Well, first, we need to be humble. We need to be humble, all right? When it came to the future, there were some things God enabled Daniel to understand. There were other things that Daniel never could understand, even with the help of a vision from the Lord and an interpretation from the angel Gabriel. I mean, how often have you thought, Lord, if you would just like give me a, a clue, a hint, what in the world is going on right now in the chaos of my life, then I could understand it all. It would all make sense. I could trust you. We could be buds and I'll go home in faith. Well, Daniel got a pretty big hint. God gave him a vision. And and then when he was a little confused, he sent him an interpreter and he got an interpretation. And what does he say in verse 27? I still don't entirely understand. Isaiah 55, 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth. If you're suffering, friend, please hear this. So are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. Okay, we're, we're never going to exhaustively understand, completely understand everything that God is doing, either in world history, in the end times, that's why so many people disagree, by the way, <laughs> or even in our own lives. But that doesn't mean that we can't understand some things truly. Okay, so instead of allowing your lack of understanding of all that God has ordained to drive you to fear, allow it to drive you to worship. To cause you to stand in awe of the God who does know all things and control all things because his greatness is unsearchable. Be humble like Daniel in the midst of present sorrow. Okay, second, Second, verse 27 reminds us, be humble, be compassionate. 
Be compassionate. Be humble. Be compassionate. When, when, when Daniel sees the intense suffering that his fellow exiles are about to experience for the next, you know, 400 years or so, he's appalled. So much so that he gets physically ill. Christian, Christian is appalled. Grief, sorrow, compassion. Is that your response in your heart? When you think of the suffering that your friends who don't know Christ will one day experience. Is that that what happens in your heart? Are you compassionate like Daniel? God God wants us to be so full of compassion, so, so appalled at the prospect of any image bearer experiencing eternal suffering that we cannot help but proclaim over and over and over again to anyone who will listen of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Be compassionate. Be compassionate. Speak of the saving power of the gospel. Be humble, be compassionate. Lastly, be obedient. Be obedient. Notice verse 27. Daniel says, Then I rose and went about the king's business. Little phrase. Oh, there's a world of wisdom in this. Because there are times in life when we're suffering. Suffering inside us, suffering around us. And, and honestly, I think it's incredibly easy to just start thinking and wondering, why should I keep going? <laughs> why, why continue with life in this world? Maybe I'll just, I mean, maybe you've struggled with suicidal thoughts, friend. Maybe, maybe you thought, I'm just going to end it all. That's what I'm going to do. Or, or, or I'll just sit around and wait till I die. If all that's coming down the pike for the next 400 years is more suffering, then why keep going to work? You see the dilemma? Why keep going to work? Well, Daniel doesn't tell us exactly what kept him going, working and serving a pagan king in a pagan kingdom that was about to come to a violent end. Okay? But we have a pretty good idea from the big picture of Daniel 7 and the entire book. What is it? Daniel knew that his God, the God who knows the future and controls the future, was working all things, even prolonged suffering, according to the perfect counsel of his will. And that gave Daniel courage to obey God in the present. Okay? It gave gave dignity and a sense of purpose and meaning to the the good works that God had called Daniel to do because he knew, he knew that even the smallest act of obedience was part of God's great big story. He knew that. And in God's story, friend, no act of obedience, no matter how small or how trivial, is ever insignificant. It always counts. It always matters. Daniel doesn't check out or isolate himself from the surrounding culture just because he knows it's all going to an end. He remains faithful to what God had called him to do. Humble, compassionate, and obedient. That's what we do in present sorrow. And we do it because we know that all our future sorrows are known by God and controlled by God. And friend, that enables us to say with the prophet Habakkuk, that the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines. 
produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, I am so grateful that in a chapter that could be, and in many ways is still, a full of mystery, that Lord, you have in Daniel 8 shown us how to find hope in the midst of sorrow. Lord, we're grateful for places in the Bible that begin with sorrow and end with sorrow because it's so often what, what our life feels like. And yet, Lord, in the middle of it all, you raise our eyes to see you, to trust you, and to see how to be faithful until you get us home. Lord, thank you for doing that. Would you bring new hope in the midst of present sorrow in the hearts of all who listen? I pray and I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.